I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn, the story of animation. From Bugs Bunny... Watch up, Doc! ...to Professor Hubert Farnsworth... ...and everything in between... What a joyful day to frolic and play. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. You turn the page, you wash your hands. Ah, squeakity-squeak. Squeaking. I wanted a peanut. I thought this was America. I don't even feel like taking a whiz on this. Focus on science. Oh, we should cry. Send this note. The bottom line is you're going to be fine. You know what? You grow up and everything... Oh, well, it doesn't work out. One of the key components of an animated character coming to life is its voice. After all, part of why Mickey Mouse rocketed to fame so quickly was the sounds in Steamboat Willie. For the first time, audiences heard cartoons fussing and gasping and vocalizing. And for cartoon voices to exist, you need voice actors. I will undo the evil that is you, samurai! I will kill you as long as I have breath in my body! I will strike you down! Long live the glory of Aku! You are very troubled. I'm trying to remember the moment where I realized it was a job. Like, I knew when I was four or five years old that I wanted to be a singer, dancer, actress. Like, it was always in me to be a performer. And to be honest with you, I didn't know that voiceover in particular was really, like, looked at as a separate career. That's Tara Strong. And if you've watched just about any animated show produced in the last three decades, you've almost certainly heard her voice. We're always hearing about this Tinkles character, but we never get to... Hi, everybody. I'm Tinkles, and these are my friends. Tara is known for her voice work, and among her literal hundreds and hundreds of credits, she's been Bubbles on the Powerpuff Girls. Mr. Monster, um, I was wondering if you would uh, be so kind as to stop destroying Townsville. Pretty please with sugar lumps on top? Harley Quinn in multiple Batman projects. If there was no Batman, there'd be no Joker, and I'd never have met my pudding. Twilight Sparkle on My Little Pony. And Raven on Teen Titans. Robin. Robin's communicator, may I? Put Robin on. Now! Uh, he's kind of in the middle of something. Well, tell him I don't do babysitting. I talked with Tara and a host of other voice talents to figure out how they build a bridge from silence to sound and breathe life into animated characters. I figured it out. Skadoosh. My first question to most of them was, how did you get this job? Well, I went to Princeton for undergrad. I majored in English, and I wanted to write. I still want to write and do every day. But I ended up getting into drama school and coming back to Los Angeles, and I was doing stand-up comedy and sketch comedy. That's Vanessa Marshall. Like Tara, she has a long list of credits, including Irwin on the long-running show The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. There it is. The sweetest crib of them all, yo. Mandy's house. Strangely, I did a one-woman show. It was sort of Lily Tomlin-esque in the sense that I played a bunch of different characters. I interacted with previously recorded footage of myself on video as all these different characters, and an agent saw me and said, you know, you probably should do animation. Why don't you come into the office? I'll read you and, you know, let you know what I think. And she ended up signing me. Some of Vanessa's recent work involves giving voice to Gamora in the animated Guardians of the Galaxy. I know what it's like to be tormented by my siblings. 
I won't help you, but I will train you. And the Twi'lek pilot Hera on Star Wars Rebels. I am not wasting my life. I help people. I lead ships into battle. But she wasn't initially sure that voice acting was for her. At that point in New York, I got a master's in acting as well, and I wasn't really sure. Again, I really only wanted to write, but uh, was pursuing an on-camera acting career. But I started booking voiceover work more so than the on-camera, so much so that I gave up the on-camera career to work solely in voiceover, and I love it. So it was sort of a happy accident that it came to pass, and I think I'm really well-suited for it. Vanessa's story of falling into the job isn't unusual. Eric Bauza got his start as an artist. I was on the other side of the glass, tacking up storyboard thumbnail drawings to corkboards and uh, making animatics and, and audio editing. But eventually, Eric became an animation voice actor. He's created multiple characters for the relaunch of DuckTales, Unikitty, and Star vs. the Forces of Evil. He's also Splinter on the rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. When I was a child, I wanted to be an artist. So it seems appropriate to name you after the masters of my favorite period in art, the Renaissance. So then how did you transition onto doing voice work? Uh, well, uh, because I was working so often with all these artists, uh, like people like Matt Danner, uh, Fred Osman, Gabe Soir, these were people that I met early on in my animation career in 1999. And as these people started to develop their own projects, they would ask me to do scratch dialogue for their pilots. Scratch dialogue, or scratch vocals, are temp tracks recorded to help set up the timing and the tone of an animation. They're normally replaced with a more polished performance later on in the process. One of the very first ones that I ended up, that ended up as a favor becoming a, a lead role in a series was with Jorge Gutierrez and um, Sandra Ikiwa. They made the movie Book of Life, and their first series for Nickelodeon was El Tigre. I told you I would stop Sartana. She is far too powerful for a child to handle. Plus, it is a school night. So I was the dad. I was the Mexican wrestling father on that show, which is my Ricardo Montalban impression. Of course, that is what I did. Tattoo, bring these wonderful guests' uh, luggages to their rooms. Who doesn't love Ricardo Montalban and want to hear him talk all the time? <laughs> but that's kind of how I got my start in voiceover, was kind of volunteering my services as uh, as someone that was just eager to be there and eager to learn and and eventually had to learn the hard way. And it wasn't easy. It was like, yeah, you could tell, like, a lot, you know, a lot of people really, they were so generous to me and I'll never be able to forget that. But they were like, yeah, oh, yeah, he needs, he needs practice. <laughs> <gasps> I can't believe I'm saying this. Unikitty, I need your help. You have to take me to Frowntown. And then there are people like David W. Collins. David's entire resume has been about sound. Well, it's funny. I started as a theater major and a music major and uh, did a lot of musical theater as a kid and was like, well, I'm going to be an actor. And then I started playing the drums and started playing in a rock band. I'm like, well, I'm going to be a musician. And then I was like, wow, but those are really tough. Yeah, maybe I'll get into sound. David definitely got into sound. Today, he works as a composer, a voice actor on shows like Transformers and Boss Baby, and a podcast host. He hosts a show on HowStuffWorks Network called The Soundtrack Show that breaks down scores, audio design, and basically anything that makes a sound in entertainment. 
His voice work started like Eric's. He started recording scratch dialogue. So I was just kind of trying to find my way as a young person and eventually got a job uh, working at Lucasfilm in my early 20s and started working in video games. And I was, my job was sound assistant. So I was doing sound editing, sound design, you know, a little mixing here and there. But they kept calling and saying, hey, we need people to come read these scripts just as scratch performances. You know, they want to test out the script. They want to cut it up, put it in the game, see how it works. And I went in and I started reading all kinds of crazy stuff, including like alien creatures and things like that. And eventually they started keeping some of that stuff. And in order to keep it, they had to do this thing called Taft-Hartley and Taft-Hartley me into the union, which is a, a document that says we have a special need for this person and that makes you eligible to join just so they could keep one of my creature performances. And then I kept doing more and more and more. Then I started to voice direct. And then I got an agent in San Francisco. Then I got an agent here in LA. Then I moved to LA. And um, my career in video games and sound ended up being a career in front of the microphone doing animation, movies, video games, that kind of thing. And it's great because, it, you know, if you're a drummer, it helps to know what the bass player is doing. If you're a bass player, it helps to know what the drummer is doing. The same is true with if you're a mixer or a voice director or a composer, it's really helpful to know what an actor goes through and what they're trying to bring to it. You know, they're all, everything is so related in my mind. You know, it, it all is feeding off of each other and, and all the parts are so important in order to create the final illusion. Oh man, this is really living. She shall prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. And since I am dead, I can take off my head. You are a sad, strange little squirrel. I'm making waffles. Shrink-eating that! Trigger out. As I talked with all of these amazing talents, one thing that was obvious across the board was how completely down to earth they all are. None of these people are rolling up with entourages. They all look perfectly put together, but no one is in their fancy pants unicorn outfit. <laughs> They're all just really casual, fun people that you would love to meet on the street. Here's Eric on why voice actors are so relaxed. I think it's just the um, hanger hang your ego at the door kind of attitude. It's it's kind of like, because you can't rely on your face and your physicality, I mean, you use your physicality, but it's not like they're looking for anyone that is specific in height or weight or gender or race or anything. It's just, can you do that voice or can't you do that voice? At a sense, it's a different form of acting that is just way more pure because you're, you're it's just your voice. I have a little bit of insight into this because I work in podcasting. So I understand what it's like to just worry about the content and what you're going to say and not have to worry about things like costume and hair and makeup. Well, that's all really fun. When you're doing this, it's really quite freeing to just work on what people are going to hear. Vanessa offered additional insight into why this line of work doesn't come with the kind of baggage that on-screen acting often does. Maybe there's something, if someone doesn't like my voice, that doesn't really hurt my feelings that much. I mean, it's sort of like, oh, oh well. Um, but if someone rejects my humanity, in other words, like what I look like, what I weigh, what my hair color is, and all these other things, I, I could see how on-camera actors would be more fearful or, or egotistical in the sense that all those things, the outside things, are all about the ego. And if your career is based on outside things, unnecessarily wouldn't one's ego be challenged on a daily basis. I mean, this is why I hated doing on camera because it's really hard not to take that personally. But I think maybe voiceover actors feel less threatened in that sense. But for the most part, it's very forgiving. I mean, 
I played Irwin in The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, and I crossed gender, racial lines, and, and you can do all sorts of wonderful things in voiceover that you can't do on camera. I also talked to Billy West, one of the geniuses of voiceover, about this unique community of performers who all seem genuinely supportive of each other rather than competitive. Because I think these people were smart enough to drop their damn ego. You know, like before you go work with other people, if somebody like Jimmy Cummings, say, is firing on all eight cylinders, it's like you don't go to yourself, ah, show off. You know, you, you just don't. You're rooting for the guy. You're rooting for a Tress McNeil. Look at what she's going to come in with. Boom, boom, boom. It's like a, um, you know, a one-two punch. Who are those horrible orange creatures over there? Why, those are the Grunkalunkas. They work here in the Slurm factory. Tell them I hate them. Billy has created voices for numerous characters on Futurama, including Philip J. Fry, Dr. Zoidberg, and Professor Farnsworth. He's also played both Ren and Stimpy. Hey, you know what would be fun? Let's go skinny dipping. What? Are you crazy? And he's been Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Despite his impressive resume and recognition as one of the greats, he's still wowed by his colleagues. You know, you marvel at these people, and you're rooting for all of them because the same tide raises all boats. It's like, if they're doing great, it inspires you to be great. You know, I go to school every time I go work somewhere. I'm still a student of it and in awe of so many of my peers. Vanessa Marshall really identified, I think, the reason that this talent pool is so void of egos. At the end of the day, they're making something bigger than themselves. It's not about us being seen, it's about telling the story. And so, to me, that is magical. And whether that's, you know, in a comic book or a book itself or a movie or a cartoon or a TV show, that makes me feel part of humanity. And that makes me feel lifted up. So I'm aware that people are doing that. So I'm not mystified by the process, but sometimes the magic of it when a story is told and, and people learn and grow, then I feel completely satisfied. <laughs> I think that really speaks to this incredible process that has come up before on the show of this is all a big group project and Vanessa is keyed into the fact that just lending her voice to this being that one ingredient that is its own kind of magic makes that whole bigger project even more magical and better. The other thing I think to note here is that that idea that you're just one ingredient in a bigger pot also speaks to the humility that keeps coming up when we're talking to voice actors. Giant. You stay. I go. And speaking of humility, one of the things that I learned in these conversations is that these people audition a lot. And sometimes for parts that they've played already. I do get parts because I'm Tara Strong, but I have to audition every day. Every day I audition for my home studio and often for a part I've already had. That can be really heartbreaking and you got to do it because if not, someone else will. When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? I don't want to know what you got to do. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. David Collins echoed that need to be constantly auditioning and he broke down the numbers of how all those reads pay off in booked gigs. There's very little prep 
most voiceover performances are cold reads. Most, not all. If you're on a series, like a you know an animated series for DreamWorks or Netflix or Disney or whatever, they'll, they'll send you the script ahead of time and you'll get to look it over. But it's not like you've had it forever. And if you're a voice actor, your job is to audition as much as possible, which means you're getting very, very good at reading things cold. The faster you can get through your audition and deliver it, the more you can audition, the more you're going to work. You know, and if you book one in every 10 audition, you're a working successful actor. I mean, even the highest paid, most successful actors audition all the time and their percentages are probably shockingly low for what most people would consider to be successful. You know, if you went on 10 job interviews and you didn't get any of them, and you finally got the 10th one, you'd feel really beaten up. But that's just a week in the life of an actor. You know, if you're lucky, you do four or five auditions a day most days out of the week. But how does the audition process start? Eric Bauza broke it down for me. Like every voiceover artist in town, man and woman, we all get like the email from our agent. And basically, they give a character description. And if we're lucky, they'll also give us like a vocal reference. Like he's like a mix of uh, this actor and this actor or this cartoon character and that cartoon character. Or they won't give us anything and they will want us to come up with it on our own, which is awesome. Like, that's kind of what you want. And I think as a voiceover artist, that's the challenge, right? That's that's the ultimate goal. I think there are a lot of voice mimics out there. You know, search YouTube. There's tons of really great mimics. But the one thing is like, okay, as a voiceover mimic, if you're going to do a voice match for a character in an audition, it's like, okay, everyone can kind of do, or not everyone, but certain people can get close to a, a Daffy Duck or a Bugs Bunny or a Popeye or whatever classic character that may need a new voice. But can you act within that impression? Because, you know, everyone can go, what's up, Jock? Oh, ice water. You know, and it's like, it's kind of like, can you talk as bugs in everyday life? Like, not just the lines that we've all heard. That's the hard, that's the challenge. I am sure that if you are listening to this and you like animation, there are probably shows that you have quoted with your friends, and you may even be really good at imitating some of those voices. But this is the key thing. You can maybe imitate something that you've heard over and over, but to learn the vocal patterns to a point where you could say almost anything in that character's voice, that is a different thing. Hello, picnic basket. I'm Batman. Oh, Bobby, it's like that hot plate you bought. You had big dreams for that. Where is it now? It's right there. Oh, it's hot. Mike Wazowski! Rick em, rack em, rack em, rake, stick that sword into that snake! You stay out of this. Jafar, Jafar, he's our man. If he can't do it, great! Because there are a lot of beloved animation reboots that happen from time to time, there are plenty of cases where a current voice actor has to step into an already well-known role. Billy has also famously stepped into a lot of roles that were previously voiced by greats like Mel Blanc. But sometimes those offer up surprising challenges. There's been three or four reboots of uh, Wacky Racers. Sneaking along fast is that mean machine with those double-dealing do-batters, Nick Dastardly and his sidekick, Muttley. And even now, they're up to some dirty trick, and they're off! You're doing Muttley, right? Yes. Oh, my heart. I know, but that whoever did that had pleurisy or something. Because <laughs> it's very hard to sustain that. It was more like, you know... <laughs> But try to do it on cue, and you're like, <clears throat> I had it, 
So to to always be ready, somehow I had to force air out of the top of my mouth. I put my fist up to my face. This is funny. And it'd be like, you know, oh, cripes, I'm failing. Fail. Watch a man fail right on a podcast. That's how I did it. Because that was more reliable than going... <laughs> You know, I do a bunch of other characters on it. And sometimes they'll bring in, like, Hanna-Barbera characters, you know, like, like Snagglepuss, you know. Forsooth, five sooth even. Exit, stage right, and running all the way. He's in the next room. Wonderful, wonderful. I'll just snag him with his tea strainer. Finding the right voice for a character can be a challenge, and there are myriad ways to approach it. Different things are going to work for different parts. But even though it's going to be a cartoon, the emotion of it has to be real. For Vanessa, that sometimes means drawing from real life. Strangely, most of the roles that I have booked are based on people I know. And what I think that is, is there's a a level of specificity to that voice because I know the person that I'm basing it on. I know exactly how they would react in every situation. I think people can feel that when they're listening to the voice. So I think the more specific an actor's homework is on creating the character, it really impacts people viscerally. And then there's the great unknown. What do you do when you have to audition for a character that no one has seen before? For Billy West, that's really fun. The biggest thrill is to um, be challenged with a drawing. A bunch of people that have all these beautiful ideas and they're praying that you're the person. That's the thing about auditioning. The person at the door is not there with their arms folded keeping you out of show business. They're very welcoming. They're praying it's you. Everybody who comes in, it's like, we hope you're the one because this is a drag. It's quarter of five. We've been here since 9 a.m. I always felt like that. I never felt uncomfortable. I just knew better. So it freed you up to play a little more once you got in there. You know, and I, I would have fun. I would just try to do something really goofy. You know, like where um, if someone said, this guy sounds like he's always in a, a big glass jar. You know, like a head in a jar. But I've done characters that are like contained. And so I would just shut my mouth and I had this way of talking like, Let me out of here! They're gonna get it. They're gonna get out of here. You know, and I'm not using my hands. Sometimes the key to success isn't basing the character on someone you know or on a unique voice, but on yourself. To play Philip J. Fry on Futurama, Billy eventually went with his own voice. It was kind of a strategy. You know, nobody I know can do someone's real voice. I mean, they can do celebrities, uh, people that are extroverted, like very vocally extroverted, like Trump, you know, all the impressionists can get that stuff. But for me to imitate your voice or his voice is very difficult. It just is. And uh, and I have this whiny, nasally, kind of plain vanilla voice. And uh, I just said, you know what? I'm going to sound like I did when I was 25 and I was in bands. Oh, man, I broke a string. You know, I mean, that's exactly what I sound like. One of the tubes in my amp blew up. You know, just whiny and planned of, why, God? But there's such earnestness to it that it makes Fry so lovable. I, yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, it's also the writing and how he's uh, 
you know, I mean, I had to get to know what to expect from him as a character, and the writers guided that, and they liked what I did with it. I also knew about doing your own regular plain voice is that if they go to replace you, it's real hard. They can replace the other characters. You know, there's mimics all over the country. You know the worst thing about being a slave? They make you work, but they don't pay you or let you go. That's the only thing about being a slave. One thing that's interesting to think about here, though, is the fact that if a voice actor uses their own voice for a character, that's not something they can do over and over. At this point, if Billy West tried it again, people would think it just sounded like Philip J. Fry. You know what else stinks about being a slave? The hours. Even though some of these people have gotten famous enough that they would be considered celebrities, that doesn't mean that they just have an easy time always booking things and they command some amazing pay. Tara Strong is one of the leaders in this industry, and she really surprised me when she talked about pay. Most voice actors are back to one every time they book something. And what I mean by that is there's a scale rate. There's a union from SAG scale rate that you make every time you go into a booth. And then as the show progresses, you get little bumps and little raises, scale and a half, double scale, maybe a back end on a movie or whatever it is your agent negotiates. But every time you book something new or if there's a reboot of something you've done, the episode that you start with, you're always back to scale. You're always back to one. Okay, so the job is booked. What happens next? How do voice actors prepare once they've landed a role? Tara told me that sometimes there's just no time for prep. Well, it depends. Um, If I'm being perfectly honest, sometimes we don't get a chance to even read a script in advance. And most of us have been doing it so long that we'll still hit it out of the park. Um, But if I do get it in advance, I'll read the script. If there's a song to learn that's more prep time, I really want to make sure I know it so I'm not wasting time and I can give the best performance of that, that song. And I read music, so there's that other thing about having training and being able to reach into your bag of tricks if you need it. Tinkles! It's past my bedtime. <laughs> Not in never past bedtime land. Here we go. to sing for a part I'll warm up in the car I have I still take singing lessons and I have my warm-ups on my phone and I'll do that and I always have 10,000 different drinks with me like something warm and something cold and something bubbly and something nothing alcoholic but (laughs) Billy shared his process for creating a new character it's a concerted effort it's like if somebody shows me a character and what do you think well I gotta look at the dimensions I gotta look at the gender maybe there is no gender Maybe it's the voice of um, a rock or something, you know? And then your mind has to start filling in the blanks. A breakdown on the characters of Futurama is um, they showed me a picture of the professor. And uh, he just, he looks so decrepit and spent, you know, and he's getting no, he looked, I, I don't know why, but I described him. He looked like airplane food, you know, when you, when you, when you pull that plastic off and it's like there's a piece of chicken with like, spots on it and diseased that's what he looked like to me and the voice is sort of a uh, an amalgam of wizards and and crazy mad scientists and you know doddering professors and stuff like that and and I knew that he was 147 so I made him a little jittery in his delivery you know and I would just go like I don't want to live on this planet anymore 
you know, and it's like you could feel the, the, the unsure stance and everything. But it makes it, it means you put some thought in it. It's not two-dimensional. It becomes fleshed out and people can have an emotional resonance about it. Shh. Be very quiet. We're in the ear. Okay, Professor. What? What about what? Uh... Billy has also had some roles that really took a lot out of him. I told him that just watching footage of him doing records for Ren and Stimpy wore me out. I'll share something with you. It wore me out, too. I would have to go in there, and they say, you're going to scream, like, to the high heavens. And I had to kind of learn to do it, or I would lose my voice. So there's a way that I would have to finally do it. But it would be like, uh, it's very manic, you know? Hey, Ren, will you button me? You shut up, you fool! Else I shall kill you! And then when they were like screaming for their lives or something, they'd be like, <laughs> and I had to do that every day. And I called my wife up when I was married. I, I went back to my room at the hotel and I said, I sounded like Alec Baldwin. Violet, I'm not going to be able to do this, Violet. You know, I was like, no, I'm not kidding. I'm going to lose my voice. <laughs> If you have spent any time yelling, whether you're playing or maybe you're genuinely angry, you probably have felt that sensation of it really taking a toll on your throat and your voice. So imagine having to yell and create those kinds of sounds for hours on end as part of your job. It may come as a complete surprise to you to find that this is an animated cartoon. I wonder what's behind that curtain, Scoob. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Buttons? <laughs> Do you like them? I like being an Aspie. No one can defeat the quad laser. It is over now. Well, I think you need to be more flexible. wanted to get the perspective of people who do voices for shows that they also work on behind the scenes. So I asked Jackson Public how he prepares to step in front of the mic to record characters for his show, The Venture Brothers. Certainly if it's a script I wrote, like I know exactly what, you know, because I probably labored over the dumb lines, like trying to get the rhythm right in my head, especially when you somebody's on a rant. And they have a lot to say in a little amount of time, and you know you know the energy it needs. And when you're writing it, you're kind of saying it in your head. The rule of comedy, you know, the rule of threes and stuff like that. It, it kind of goes the same way for like sentences too. You know, when you want somebody to make a rant, like you just know when there's an extra sentence in there that's just going to throw off the rhythm. In every fiber of my being, I stab at thee. As long as blood flows through this heart, I will hunt you down. I will be the stuff of your children's nightmares. What's he doing now? He's making his dramatic exit. <sighs> this could take all night. I'm going to get Brock. Oh, I think he's almost done. Jackson's co-creator on the Venture Brothers, Doc Hammer, is quick to praise his colleague's work as a voice actor. But despite creating really recognizable voice performances, he claims himself to have no real skill. He's good at it. He can do about 10 voices and you don't know they're all the same thing. All my voices sound the same to me. I just pitch them up or pitch them down. But they're all just me. I don't have a rubbery voice. So Dr. Girlfriend is this speaking voice just a little deeper. Same voice, just a little deeper. Why do you want me back? Because your tree fort is falling apart or because you love me? Because I love you! And then Billy is my speaking voice with a lateral lisp. 
So it sounds like this. I, I never asked for the answers. I didn't want to cheat. And then if I go up higher, way up in here, it's Henchman 21. Gentlemen, choose your weapons. Is this them? Are these they? Who talks like that? They're all the same voice. I am not good at it. It's kind of like uh, Muppets. You know, my favorite voices on the show aren't the celebrities that we get. It's Jackson and I trying desperately to come up with a new voice. I would actually argue with Doc on this one because I think his voices all sound really different. I am particularly fond of Billy Quizboy because there's just something about that lisp that's really endearing. So it's interesting to me that even for people that are not career voice actors, somehow doing this job makes you really humble about the work. In addition to, or maybe part of, the humility that seems pervasive among voice actors is the fact that they all seem to really be fans of animation themselves. Here's Tara talking about Mark Hamill as the Joker in Batman The Killing Joke. I have to say, The Killing Joke was some of the finest acting in this business that I've witnessed. Mark Hamill and his portrayal of that version's origin story was so moving to me. Why can't you? By clinging to reality, you're denying the reality of the situation. I mean, do you ever think about how many times we've come close to World War III over a flock of geese on a computer screen? Silly goose, it's all a joke. Everything anybody's ever valued or struggled for, it's monstrous. Why can't you see the funny side? Why aren't you laughing? He was incredible. He was incredible. I I love that movie so much. I know it was controversial, but it was some of the most incredible acting from a voiceover performer, which I've often felt when I first started doing Batgirl and I was beside Hamill and Conroy, I was pinching myself. They're just incredible, incredible performers. David Collins had high praise for voice actor D. Bradley Baker, who has pulled off the astonishing feat of playing an entire army of clones. Speaking of just being able to vary your voice, I don't know if people truly appreciate how difficult this was, but D. Bradley Baker in Star Wars The Clone Wars portrayed an entire army of clone troopers through, was that, six, six seasons of The Clone Wars? That is incredibly difficult. He has an episode in season one called Rookies where... He is just talking to himself the entire episode, and he's five characters on screen. Uh, shouldn't you be watching your scope, Heavy? Yeah, let's take a look. Hmm, what do you know? All clear. Personally, I like that it's so quiet out here. I can catch up on the reg manuals. Echo, what is wrong with you? We should be out in the front lines, blasting droids. Ah, leave him alone. They kept him in his growth jar too long. Yeah. (laughs) And they're all different. They're all unique. Oh, and by the way, they all look relatively the same. They'll, they'll have different haircuts and they'll have different, you know, pieces on their armor and different weapons, but they're designed to be clones. And because of that, what an incredible creative challenge for D. Bradley Baker. But, you know, I'm just going to go into the studio and we're going to record this episode and it's me talking to me and I have to figure out how to respond to me. That takes tremendous imagination. He's just a huge hero of mine. Listening to all these talents praise the work of others made me wonder if they're capable of seeing their own performances with the same sense of delight. For Tara Strong, part of what makes her own work fun is seeing it through her kids' eyes. I love like when my kids 
watch something that I kind of forget about. Like my son was dying laughing watching an episode of Family Guy where he came running in. He's like, Mommy, there's this hilarious scene with Stewie at an orphanage and you play all the kids in the room. <laughs> and he was like, and I was like, oh, and I was watching it. and It was a really funny scene. So I can sort of make that departure and, and watch it and appreciate the, the end piece. There is actually another trick you can employ if you have to listen to yourself. I know because I do this one. I just pretend I'm not in it. Billy West, it turns out, does the same thing. It's very surreal to me. Do you know what I mean? It's like you hear your voice everywhere. It's just, it's surreal. And I have to compartmentalize or I'll start judging what I did. I have to just say, oh, look at that, you know, that's pretty good. But if I start analyzing what I did, it'll, you know, the artist's way is that you begin hacking away at your own accomplishments or achievements and could have done that better, could have done it better, listen to that, it blows. And uh, that's what happens to people if they think like that. And so I, I just enjoy it as if, as if um, I wasn't part of that project. You know, I don't want to get too caught up in it because uh, you got to remain free for other projects. Your mind has to be kind of free and it can't be struggling with things you've done. I think it's pretty common knowledge that most people that work on anything creative have a tendency to kind of be their own worst critic and tear apart their own work. And sometimes, as Billy pointed out, you just have to let that stuff go because odds are no one's ever going to be 100% satisfied with the work they've done, but you can't keep editing that document or writing that same paragraph or making that same piece of costume armor. At some point, you just have to put it on or put it out into the world and just go on with your life. Hey, Stewie, peekaboo. Yes, I see you, fat man. Where's Daddy? Where did you go? It really doesn't matter which way you go. There's no room on this paper to properly describe how much I hate you. Go die. If you are what you eat, I could be you by morning. And every last inch of me's covered with hair. Gross, right? Yeah, it's an acquired taste that I just acquired. As I had these conversations, which were a complete and utter delight to me because I am a fan of all of these people, I started to think about the future of this part of the industry. And I wondered if they thought about how the next generation of voice actors sees them. Do you ever think about, though, that the... I know this is heady and it's weird to ask you, that there is a kid out there to whom you're Mel Blank? I, I guess it has to be that way, you know, because it was like that for me. And when Mel Blanc was a kid, you know, he was learning to play violin and and bass. And then he would do nutty things. He'd drive out to the countryside and sit near a pigsty and just watch the pigs slopping around. You know, he said that he was looking for a voice for this character that Warner Brothers wanted him to do. And it was a pig. So he went to watch the pigs and they were like, you know, all this and that. And he'd be like, you know, and then they sped it up. That's all for air, folks. And that's the craziness, the spark of craziness in you. You can't, you can't discount that. That's what makes something new happen. Billy kind of made a great example of what we've been talking about throughout this whole episode, that Voice actors tend to be really, really humble. They're not always big on lionizing themselves. So as soon as I started giving him compliments, he instead sort of turned it and started complimenting Mel Blanc. 
I can understand how talking about yourself in that way is hard, especially considering how much we've already heard to indicate that this is a talent group with a lot of humility. But if anyone has earned the right to a bit of pride, it's career voice actors. All these people I spoke with have trained and studied and continue to hone their craft. Vanessa Marshall was quick to point out that while the job is fun, that doesn't equate to easy. It takes an awful lot of practice. A lot of times people will come up to me and say, everyone tells me I have a great voice, what should I do? I have taken more voiceover classes and continue to take voiceover classes because our culture changes. Things are constantly in flux and I think it's almost like you can't just go to the gym once and expect to be fabulous. Like it, it's a daily grind. And similarly, I think voiceover is like being an athlete. So I don't think people understand what it truly takes to have sort of a very nimble, competitive, humble, just uh, unrelenting attitude about the whole thing. Like it, it's enjoyable, but it isn't easy. I wouldn't say it's easy. But luckily, it's fun, so it, it's worth it. I love what I do. I love it. Like so many jobs in entertainment, while there's certainly plenty of glory to be had, and that's the part that we as audiences and consumers see, there is a lot of work that goes into that process to get there. It's not always easy. When Tara Strong interacts with aspiring voice talent, she really makes a point to guide them in the right direction. She absolutely wants them to understand the commitment that they are making. For me, the most important thing, because I often see people at cons saying, yeah, go for it, but go for it means move here and give up your life. This is where you have to be if you really want to be a big voice talent. And I think that that's a mistake because it isn't an open arms business. The truth is it's very hard to break in. And I think that you have to be conscious of your preparations. You have to take scene study. You have to take improv. You have to take any kind of acting class, singing lessons to learn what your voice is capable of doing and your range. And then after that, getting into a really great voiceover class where you can get microphone time from somebody reputable, not from someone that did a couple jobs and thinks they can teach now, so give me your $1,000. No. Go onto the SAG website and see which places they recommend. Talk to friends that have done classes that have had success that then go on to make a good demo and submit that demo to local agents again that are recommended on your SAG website and then only pay them a percentage of what you make. Never, ever pay to audition. I just hate that so much. I know that may sound kind of daunting. Like, there are all of these warnings that voice acting is really difficult. But the other thing that I think is really important to note is that all of these people are incredibly hardworking. And that's really what they tend to be the most proud of. There is also a really great sense among everyone I spoke with of just how rewarding this job can be. Here's Eric Bauza. It's funny, I don't think about it until I'll get like an email out of the blue from someone I've never met or like a tweet or something, like some kind of social media like instant message where they tell me, oh, I love this and I love that. And, and when you go to Comic-Con and when you meet these people, these folks, and I'm a fan too, like that's how I approached it always. I'll always be a fan first. It's always those reminders that I'm always thankful that I get to do what I do and that I guess I am doing something in the right direction because there are people telling me, oh, yeah, you did this great. And how do I get into it? And how? And I, I try to give any up and comer as much advice as I possibly can because I never had that. I, I only had that experience once I got in. 
Tara Strong, in case it has not been obvious to you already, is an incredibly warm person. And there is something about her voice and her work that clearly touches fans. And she is very conscious of how deeply important her characters can be to people because they tell her all the time. Going to cons and meeting the fans certainly opens your eyes to how important that is. Um, I can't tell you how many adults come over to me and say, Raven, save my life. Having someone to relate to like that or attempted suicide or got me through my parents' divorce or whatever it is. And I had a mom come to me a couple cons ago and she was crying watching her daughter talking to me and I thought it was very sweet, but she was really, really crying. And I went over to her and I said, are you okay? And she says, my daughter's autistic and she hasn't spoken in five years. And she heard you were coming and she hasn't stopped speaking for two weeks. And like, it was very emotional for her and for me as well. And that's part of the reason I like doing the cons is, is to meet these people. But it's amazing the characters that I've booked, like, I don't know what horseshoe I was born under, but they're all really iconic, important um, role models for, for everyone. There's someone for everybody in what I've done. And I feel very, very grateful. I really like knowing that there's that level of reciprocal love and appreciation between the audience and the talent. It's another way that animation creates unique connections that were probably never on the minds of the trailblazers who invented the art form. I wonder what Windsor McKay or James Stewart Blackton would think of pop culture conventions filled with animation fans of all ages just clamoring to meet show creators and voice actors. And speaking of fans of all ages... Our next episode delves into the interesting way that animation went from pre-film entertainment for adults to being seen as kid stuff in the mid-20th century to expanding into an all-ages art form in the modern golden age. To me, it wasn't weird to watch Daffy Duck when I was 17 years old, but that would have been very weird for my father. But yeah, my father watched Daffy Duck when Daffy was in a theater. So he was very familiar with cartoons. It was just a kid thing. But to myself and to many others like me, it wasn't odd at all to continue to watch animation when we were much older because those were some of our fondest memories and some of the shows we loved the most. In the meantime, if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us at drawnpodcast.com. And that is also our handle across all of social media, drawnpodcast. So visit us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And let us know what you think. 